Chapter 36 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 36 Barbados and Home. With much reluctance, I tore myself away from my friends of Georgetown and sailed for my next port, Bridgetown, in the island of Barbados, distant about 400 miles. We reached the lightship at about daybreak, and there found a very nasty sea running. High, steep rollers were coming in that tossed us about in a very uncomfortable way. The lightship was no less lively. As we passed her, she hoisted three signals to us in succession. J.L. Appearances are threatening. J.P. Heavy weather coming. And J.S. Get an offing. As we knew that those on board had some good reason for thus warning us, we did not disregard their advice, but made for the open sea on the port tack. At 2 p.m., considering that we had now got out a sufficient offing, and would easily weather the outermost shoals off the Essequibo, I put the vessel about and found that she would just lay on her course for Barbados when close-hauled on the starboard tack. The wind north-northeast to northeast had now freshened, the sea was very rough, in consequence doubtlessly of the opposition of the wind and current, which was rushing with great velocity towards the Gulf of Paria. This head sea deadened our way, and we shipped a good deal of water at times. On the following day, the weather was worse. The ship labored a good deal, and our decks were constantly full of water. We were obliged to take two reefs in our mainsail and set the third jib. On the 17th of February, the weather improved, though there was still an unpleasantly choppy sea. This day, we overhauled one of the island schooners and were pleased to find that we not only sailed much faster than she did, but that she made much more leeway than ourselves. Her mainsail was a huge sliding gunter, as is usual in the West Indian schooners, and set flat as a board. Indeed, the sailmakers in these islands know their trade well and often cut sails that Lapthorn would not be ashamed of. During the whole of this voyage, I was suffering from a bad attack of remittent bilious fever, which for three days quite prostrated me and prevented me from taking my watch. This fever, common in tropical South America, is very severe while it lasts. Nearly all the symptoms of yellow fever accompany it, including the yellowness. Indeed, it is often mistaken for yellow fever, and many deaths that occur through it on vessels at sea are put down to the more deadly and contagious disorder. My mate, of course, was sure that it was yellow fever from which I was suffering, and was in much dread of contagion. It may have been so, as far as I know, but I rather think that it was not. At midday, the 18th of February, we sighted the island of Barbados. As we approached it, its often remarked likeness to the Isle of Wight, as viewed from the sea, struck me. It is about the same size as the English island, and like it, is covered with verdure. But the verdure of Barbados, when seen nearer, proves to be that of the sugar cane, which is planted over the whole island from the mountain tops to the seashore. We had been sailing all this time on the starboard tack, but now found that we just failed of making our destination without tacking. At about midnight, we were some four miles from the shore, under the lee of the island, between South Point Lighthouse and Needham Point. Tacking off and on, we preserved this position until daylight, 
when we sailed into Carlisle Bay and came to an anchor off Bridgetown in the man-of-war ground. Bridgetown, seen from the anchorage, does not look like a town at all, but more like a village of huts scattered over a pleasant grove of cabbage palms, cotton trees, and other tropical vegetation. No sooner had our chain run out of the hawse pipes than we were surrounded by a very fleet of negro boots, whose garrulous occupants commenced to swarm over our decks until we drove them off forcibly. Their importunity was fearful. There were fat, bumboat women vending ginger, bananas, and what not. Other damsels who wished to do our washing for us at half a dollar de dozen piece, massa, and others, men, women, and children, who had no ostensible trade, but were adroit beggars and thieves. I had nowhere else experienced so disagreeable an ovation. It would be well if the rigid laws about visiting vessels that prevail in Bahia and other Brazilian ports were enforced in this harbor. But the Barbadian Negro is free a great deal too free to be otherwise than exceedingly objectionable. As I still felt very ill, and it was Sunday, I did not go on shore this day. On Monday, the 20th of February, I landed in my boat in the Caranaga, or inner and artificial harbor. I was surprised to find all the shops shut and to hear the church bells ringing, and, on inquiring the cause of this, was told that this had been proclaimed a holiday and day of thanksgiving throughout the island of Barbados for the cessation of the yellow fever. This curse of the West Indies had been raging in an epidemic form for many months in this island, which is generally free from it, and is indeed considered to be by far the healthiest of all the Antilles. As at Georgetown, the white regiments had been removed. I soon saw that my stay in Barbados would be prolonged, for I had brought several letters of introduction with me, and my friends soon became legion. The hospitality of the Barbadians is well known, and they take very good care that no stranger leaves them but with regret, and bearing away with him a most agreeable memory of the delightful little island. Barbados seemed to me utterly strange after the countries I had recently visited. I felt as if I was in Europe in England once again, for it is not the towns merely here that show signs of civilization, but the whole country. No trackless backwoods and jungles meet the traveler, no indications of a new country and of a struggle between barbarism and civilization. The whole island is as carefully cultivated as the richest portions of Great Britain. Good roads, painfully glaring by the way as they are macadamized with snow-white coral, are everywhere, Indeed, form a closer network than anywhere in England. Pleasant country houses, too, are dotted over all the country, the habitations of planters, each surrounded with its sugar plantations, boiling houses, and windmill. For the windmill is the great feature of a Barbadian landscape. Sugar-making is not here carried on on so large a scale as in Demerara, but by private individuals of small capital. Hence, the use of wind as a rule instead of steam power. Happily, the trade wind blows fresh and strong during the very season of the sugar-making. Indeed, on the whole, Barbados gives one the impression of not being a colony at all, but an old settled country. It is indeed our most ancient settlement in this portion of the globe, having been in our undisputed possession since 1625. So many friends had I that there was no part of the island that I did not visit at the invitation of the hospitable planters. 
from the petroleum wells on the windward coast to the quaintly shaped hills of the districts known as Scotland at the other extremity. We had some pleasant picnics and cruises, too, in the Falcon, visiting in her the little ports of Holtown and Spitestown. One day we circumnavigated the island with a party of friends, carefully avoiding, of course, the coral reef that entirely surrounds Barbados. This voyage we accomplished in eleven hours. We passed a vessel that had run ashore on the reefs off South Point. She was rapidly breaking up, and the timber that formed her cargo was scattered, floating over the ocean. The Negroes of the Windward Coast, famous wreckers, were hard at work collecting this, and no doubt managed to steal a good deal before a body of police was sent down to look after them. My cook now became very ill indeed, and I was obliged to send him to the colonial hospital. His illness promised to be a very tedious one, and I was much puzzled as to what to do next. To sail away without him, the best sailor and the most trustworthy man I had, in fact the only one of the crew worth anything, was a measure which I felt great repugnance in taking. Again, to wait at Bridgetown until he was well enough to resume his duties, which might be a question of many months, was impossible. I frequently visited the poor fellow at the hospital, as he was very lonely there, not being able to express himself in English, and finding no one who understood Spanish or Italian. That we should be obliged to sail away without him evidently preyed on his mind, for he was really attached to me and to the vessel, and nothing could compensate him for a separation. However, other circumstances led me to decide on a course of action which certainly was the remotest from my thoughts when I sailed into Bridgetown. I was recalled to England by important business that could not well wait, and I saw that I must give up my cruise through the West Indian Islands and sail home at once. Things standing thus, certain of my friends put it before me that it would be well to discharge my crew, lay up the Falcon, return to England by steamer, and in the delightful winter season, after the hurricane months were over, come back to the West Indies, refit the yacht, ship a native crew, and carry out my old plan. I doubt whether I should have given way had it not been that several friends offered then to join me for a cruise right through the islands. I had now so long been alone on board that the idea of companions seemed very pleasant. Such a voyage with a merry party of West Indians who knew the islands and would have friends everywhere was indeed something to be looked forward to. My friend, Mr. Taylor of Fontabelle, kindly offered to store my property and look after the yacht while I was away if I hauled her up on the beach by his garden. Thus it was that I determined to lay up the falcon for a time and suspend my cruise for some six months. There were not wanting other reasons to help me in coming to this decision. Among others, the necessity for a thorough overhauling of my vessel and my own rather ill condition of health. My system was soaked with malaria, which weakened me and took away much of my energy and pleasure in the voyage. Seeing the rather unaccountable ill health of all hands on board the yacht, continuing as it had done over a period of some months, a suspicion as to a probable cause crossed my mind, which has now been much strengthened by an article I recently read in a medical journal. Our diet, while at sea, and to a great extent also while in port, had consisted in tinned meats. Now these preserved provisions, wholesome though they may be when fresh, 
do not, as many suppose, keep so for an indefinite time. Chemical changes of some kind take place in the contents of the tin, while the metal itself, dissolved as it must gradually become by the acids that some provisions contain, is itself more or less injurious. Many of our tins had been two years on board the Falcon, and most of that time in the tropics. In my opinion, this had something to do with the symptoms of blood poisoning that were manifested by several of our company. Had I alone been the sufferer, I should not have attributed my ill health to the tinned meats, for malaria was sufficient to account for my condition. But here were these Italians, who had visited no very unhealthy country, had caught no malaria, drank no bad water, prostrated with disorders that decidedly indicated the presence of some poison in the system. It is a question if the old sea diet of salt meat is not more wholesome after all than an exclusive living on these tasty but rather treacherous preserved meats and vegetables. I paid off my crew and found means for them to return to Europe and set out to lay up the falcon. I anchored her off Mr. Taylor's house and took everything out of her. Then, with the aid of some twenty negroes, rollers, strong tackle, and screw jacks, I gradually hauled the old vessel out of the water up the shingle bank to a pretty berth under the shade of waving cabbage palms, cocos, and machineels. I did not return to England by the mail steamer, but in the 500-ton bark Augusta, commanded by my friend Captain Young. After a very pleasant, though rather rough voyage of 30 days, we sighted Hartland Point, a strong southwest gale blowing at the time, then hove to under the lee of Lundy to take the pilot on board and were towed into Bristol docks. After nearly two years' absence, I was indeed glad to step once more on English land and walk through the streets of the dear old western town I knew so well, the fresh, rosy faces of the people seeming very pleasing after the sallow and pallid inhabitants of the tropics. I was unable to go to Barbados in the autumn, as I proposed to resume my cruise. For now I was laid up for many months, suffering from severe sequela of malaria, so the old vessel still lies high and dry under the waving palms, waiting till her master returned to take her from isle to isle of the lovely Caribbean Sea, and across the Atlantic to her moorings off familiar old Southampton, which he is eagerly looking forward to do. But up to now, alas, the doctors insist on keeping apart the falcon and her affectionate owner and captain. The end. End of chapter 36. End of the Cruise of the Falcon by Edward Frederick Knight.